Let me pray one more time. We'll ask the Lord's blessing on our message and our, our hearing of the word. Our Father, we thank you for the great privilege of gathering together openly and freely to worship you through our voices and through hearing what you have to say to us now. I do pray, as always, Lord, that you would open our minds to understand these things and our hearts to receive them as truth and to be changed by them. I pray, Lord, that we would be attentive to what you have to say to us. And with that also, I pray that whatever nonsense has come from my own imagination or bigotries or opinions would be set aside, but what is good and pure and true would be taken to heart. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be so familiar with your word or so familiar with what we think it says, that we would be clothed to learning new things. God, I pray, Lord, that you would humble all of us and exalt your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the word of the Lord comes to us from the book of Jonah. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be finishing this book up over the next couple of weeks, but we're going to be finishing up chapter 3 today. So this is your chance to hit the table of contents because it's a tiny book and you fly right by it. Depending on your translation, it might only be one page too. Uh, But we'll be looking at Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, if you'd like to read along with me. This is God's word for God's people. The word of the Lord. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. We are drawing near to the end of our study in Jonah, and it's at this point in the story where the question of the Ninevites finally reaches its culmination and its conclusion. If you had been reading through, um, straight through this book, kind of in one sitting, which probably takes 10 minutes, uh, you may have been wondering if Jonah would ever get to Nineveh, that is, if you didn't already know how the story turns out. You'd be wondering, would he ever get there? And if he did, what was actually going to happen when Jonah called out against them? Because if we did the math, we wouldn't calculate a favorable outcome for his visit. Uh, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, the place where they skin people alive, and call out against it and tell them that their wickedness has stirred stirred God's wrath to the point where God intends to overthrow the city in just over a month. We would expect that if Jonah went, he would meet a horrible death and never be heard from again, which happens so often in the history of missions. Uh, We think of Jim Elliott and Nate Saints being killed by the Alka Indians in Ecuador. Uh, Just a couple years ago, there was a young man who tried to reach this island in the Indian Ocean, and just about as soon as he landed, he was was murdered there as well. We would think going to this uh, murderous city, Jonah would also just, just disappear. Instead, we find the wicked, barbaric, pagan Ninevites, the enemies of God and his chosen people, 
listening to Jonah's message and believing God. In the last message, we looked at this passage, uh, Jonah 3, verses 4 through 5, which says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. By the Holy Spirit, they were convicted of their guilt and the truth of God's word, and they responded to it. In other words, they repented. We need to consider for a moment what these Ninevites believed when it says in verse 5 that they believed God. They actually believed that God intended to entirely destroy them in 40 days, which is exactly what God intended to do. It's what he said he would do. God was not in one of those, uh, like one of those parents you see out in public who are endlessly threatening their misbehaving child but never actually do anything to, to follow through on it. God means what he says, and the Ninevites understood this. They heard the message of judgments against sin, and they believed it thoroughly, and they believed it completely. And they, they believed it, and they understood it so well that they starved themselves and their livestock so they could devote themselves to, to prayer, to beg for mercy against the coming disaster. The king says, don't let anybody eat or drink, but everybody cover themselves and call out, and maybe God will relent. Now, this strikes me because the message of judgment is still in place, and yet people are not repenting of their sin. God says to the world today that unless a person repents, he will face judgment, wrath, and destruction. This, just, this wasn't just a popular theme amongst Bible-thumping Puritans. This is still the message of the Bible that endures today. Yet where is the mourning and the sackcloth? Where's the prayer and the fasting? And why are people refusing to turn from their sin? Many years ago, I went up to uh, Canada, Abbotsford, because there's a, um, a church multiplication movement happening up there. There are Sikhs, Indian Sikhs, who are turning to the gospel. I really wanted to visit one of these churches and see what a worship service would be like with converts from Sikhism. And I was amazed because they were so emotional. There, was pe there were people on their knees raising their hands and praying and thanking God for their deliverance. And I grew up, and I've never seen that before in um, an American church. I wonder if it's just because we've, we've become so used to it that it's lost its, its power, it's lost its, uh, its significance to us. I think of David's psalm where he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I know if that's a prayer that we should all say. Because the question is, why are people refusing to turn from their sin? And the, the funny thing with our story, we have to look at who are the ones who are actually refusing to turn from, from sin in our series on Jonah. It's God's people. It's Israel. It's the church. The pagans repented. And as I mentioned in previous messages, the significance of the story of Jonah can only be properly understood or properly grasped if we keep in mind when it was written and who it was written to. Who would be reading this story that the Ninevites repented? Well, it was 8th century B.C. Israel. The book of Jonah was written to teach Israel that sin will result in judgment and repentance will result in forgiveness. This was a message for God's people. These people were so comfortable in their self-conception as God's chosen, redeemed, special people 
that they didn't believe it mattered whether they lived in sin or not. We're already saved, so God will overlook or ignore our rebellion and wicked living. These were people who took advantage of others, who showed no care for immigrants or the poor or orphans. They were people concerned with their own wealth and comforts and who completely ignored the weightier matters of the law. This was a people who used the civil law to confiscate other people's houses and land, who committed sexual immorality, who worshipped idols and materialism and ignored giving glory to God in all things. The book of Jonah was written to this people to show them that God intends to judge sin, yet he will relent from this destruction if they repent, like the Ninevites did, but they, Israel, did not. And what happened? How did this story conclude? Nineveh repented and Israel received judgment. The unsaved barbarians believed God, repented and turned from their sin, and Israel, the arrogant religious nation, was wiped off the map just a few decades after Jonah was written. God hates sin. He hates evil. He hates pride and arrogance. He hates injustice and murder. He hates oppression, greed, racism, materialism, sexual immorality, and debauchery. He hates the abuse of the poor, the vulnerable, and the immigrant. And his wrath will be poured out on every sin. And if our lives are marked by habitual, casual, consistent sin and are not lives of repentance and contrition, Jesus says we will all likewise perish. 1 John 3, 4 through 10 reads, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brothers. But will God cast Christians into hell? No, no he won't. But an unrepentant life that loves sin and despises God's word is not a Christian life. And you will know them by their fruit. And Israel learns the price of this presumption. The very next book of the Bible after Jonah is Micah. And we see in Micah God bringing the order of execution on Israel because they, in the end, did not turn from their sin. Micah 2, 2 to 3 reads, They, meaning Israel, covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Micah 1, 2-7 reads, Hear you peoples, all of you pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. 
the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones in the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images will be beaten to pieces. All her wages will be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. If you remember historically at this time, the nation of God's people was split into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah, capital in Jerusalem, and northern kingdom of Israel, capital was at Samaria, and it was out of this northern kingdom of Israel that Jonah came. So when it says, I'm going to make Samaria a heap in the open country, that's God saying to Israel, the unrepentant Israel from which Jonah came, I'm blotting you out. And you know from the stories of your Bible, that's exactly what happened in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in, destroyed Israel, they hauled people out, and they brought other conquered peoples in. These people interbred with the remaining Jews. Those were the Samaritans of Jesus' time. The kingdom of Israel never recovered after this judgment. And this is why we have these stories of the ten lost tribes, because of this uh, demolition that God brought against this sinful nation. This was something that God did because they refused to repent of their sin, and it's something which has had repercussions even into our own lifetimes. And the significance of this passage is that we see God's chosen people, Israel, receiving God's wrath for their sin because they would not follow Him, obey Him, or turn from their sin. God gave them ample warnings, numerous prophets sent to them, but they did not believe God was going to do anything about their wickedness. They presumed upon God's patience and thought that since they were God's special nation that they could sin and rebel and abuse and not face justice for it. They were wrong. And Nineveh was assigned to them. They should have seen that God acts. They should have learned that this city of violent barbarians believed God's word of judgment and repented. And yet Israel, who were privileged in God's grace and had his revelation, did not believe God. In the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the majority of Israel were still refusing to turn to God and to be saved. And Jesus brought up Nineveh again to use Nineveh as an example and a condemnation for hard and penitent hearts, hearts that would not believe God's warnings. In Matthew 12, 41, Christ says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So we need to pause and ask the question, does this statement by the Lord Jesus Christ apply to us as well? Do the crimes of Israel apply to us as well? Is there presumption in our hearts? Unconfessed sin that we love too much to turn from? Hatred or greed? slander or gossip, sexual immorality or materialism that we love more than holiness and which will keep us from inheriting the kingdom of heaven if we don't turn? Because somebody greater than Jonah has come. 
And he has called us to repent and to turn from our sin and our rebellion and believe savingly in his name. So when the men of Nineveh rise up at the judgment, will they condemn you or me? One commentator wrote, The Ninevites understood enough to repent, having heard Jonah's warning of judgment. How much more should Christians, knowing more than Ninevites, and even more than Jonah, looking back as we do on the grace of God in the blood of Christ, freely and eagerly turn in repentance to God for His mercy? Someone greater than Jonah has come. Someone greater than Solomon or David or Elijah or Moses. The Word made flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ, who died on a Roman cross, spilling his precious blood as the final substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. He was pierced for our transgressions. He is the final Passover lamb without spot or blemish. He was raised again from the dead on the third day so that all who would repent and believe in him would be saved. As Christ followers living in 21st century Port Townsend and Jefferson County, we have been given this light to live by and to share with those who are still living in darkness of spiritual enslavement and death. A culture that praises infant murder and sexual immorality as morally virtuous and praiseworthy, yet which can experience transformation of heart and mind through the gospel of the good news of God's grace, if only people would tell them. The gospel which Paul wrote in Romans 1, 16-17 is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. And one commentator said, we should view the threats of judgment in the Bible from this perspective. Why, after all, does God warn that the wages of sin is death? The obvious answer is to draw us to the free gifts of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peter warned, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. What was his point? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? This is the eternal perspective that the Bible tells us to have given that we're going to meet our Lord one day. Everybody is going to meet Jesus. Everybody in the world is going to meet Jesus someday. What sort of lives should we be living now? Given that the world is going to be burned up and dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? God has fixed a day when he will come to judge the world's evil and sin and wickedness. And I was on a walk with my son and I saw a bumper sticker that said, uh, ju uh, what did it say? Non-judgment day is coming. It was basically saying, we hope that there's going to be a time where we're no longer judging each other. Sounds nice. It would be nice if we were all nice to each other. But it was also terribly sad because this day is coming whether you believe in it or not. This day is coming when God is going to judge all the wickedness, all of the, all of the wrongs and all of the sins and all the wickedness that have been stored up in human history will be finally dealt with. God has fixed this day, and He has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a Savior so that those who repent and believe will be saved on that day. And not only that, the Bible says we will actually look forward to it. We're going to be looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back. 
And those who have been saved and are experiencing and will experience this great salvation will be a changed people. Each true Christian is a new creation with a new heart and a new nature. And we will therefore live new lives that are not marked by sin of their old ways of living. They will be transformed and will not live like unrepentant Israel did in the days of Jonah. If God gives you a new nature, God gives you a new heart, God makes a new creation out of you, God gives you new affections, you will not live like you used to live. That's why Jesus could say you will know them by their fruits. If this person is exactly the same as before their profession happened, the math says they're exactly the same. It was an empty profession. The Apostle Peter wrote, all of you, talking to the church, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the redeemed life. This is the spirit-filled life. If we want a spirit-filled church, it begins with spirit-filled Christians. This is, this is a changed life. It's a different life. It's a life that is turned from sin and self and turned to God and life. Now, in Peter's passage, there's a phrase which should stand out to us because it's important to the phrase in our passage from Jonah and to the core of the message that I'm attempting to deliver today. It says, let him turn away from evil and do good. And this is what repentance means. It means turn from evil and do good. In verse 8 from our passage in Jonah, the king of Nineveh calls for his people to repent. And he says, let everyone turn from their evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So up to this point in the message, you might be wondering how what I've been saying is actually related to the passage from Jonah. And this verse, verse 8, is key to understanding the connection with thematically, but also understanding what Jesus meant when he said that the Ninevites' repentance would confront the believers of his audience. I don't know about your Bible, but in mine, the heading of the passage in Jonah says, the people of Nineveh repent. That, that was added by editors at some points. Um, but it is an accurate description of the portion of the story. But as I've said with these messages before, it's not just the big themes that you need to pay attention to, but the details of the story as well. And what today's passage shows us is what repentance is, what repentance looks like, and what the results of repentance are. So if we've been discussing so far the necessity of repentance for a right relationship with God, we also need a right understanding of repentance, and this portion of Jonah gives us that. So first we see that repentance involves a mourning and a horror of sin. Verse 6 says that when he, the preached word reached the king of Nineveh, he got off of his throne, took off his royal robe, put on the garments of mourning, and sat in ashes. The word of God convicted him of his wickedness, and he saw for the first time his own sin in light of God's holiness and justice. And I suppose if you wanted to uh, 
almost look, apply this metaphorically to your own life, you could ask the question is, when I'm confronted with my sin, do I get off of my own throne and take off my robe and take off my tinsel crown of my little kingdom in which I strut around like Caesar? And do I mourn for the way that I've offended Almighty God? This is how we feel about sin, sadness, grieving and offending the most loving being in existence, our Father. Do we experience grief and horror at standing guilty before a God who describes himself as a consuming fire who will punish the wicked in everlasting darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth? When we use the word salvation, do we actually appreciate what we're being saved from? Second, we see the king call for literal life-altering response. The people were called to stop what they were doing, including eating and drinking, and cry out for mercy. They were not called to just feel kind of bad about it, like you, you made grandma mad because you called her old. They were called to mourn, to change, to turn from their wickedness. Repentance isn't merely just feeling bad or feeling guilty about our sin, but actually turning from it. Judas felt bad about what he did. He felt bad enough about himself to hang himself. He didn't repent. He didn't turn to Christ for forgiveness. He just felt awful about it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice. Here's our big one. Slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Don't just feel bad about your sin. Don't just think that God wants an apology like when you were in school and the teacher told you to say sorry for hitting somebody. God says, put to death what is earthly in you. Turn. Jesus said, you need to take sin so seriously he was using hyperbolic uh, parable, but he said, cut your hand off if it's causing you to do evil. Gouge your eye out if it causes you to sin. And I, in my last church uh, in Bellingham, there were lots of young men. They took this call serious enough. They all got flip phones if they had a problem with what they were looking at. They cost them something. They put to death the thing that was causing them to sin. The king of Nineveh ordered everyone to turn from his evil way and from the violence that was in his hands. He didn't send a card around asking for everyone to sign it, saying, sorry for skinning people alive. He said, turn from your evilness. Turn from your violence. Third, in verse 10, we see the result of repentance. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And when God saw what they did, specifically how they turned from their evil, he withdrew the death sentence. The result of their true repentance and the result of our true repentance is mercy and life. This isn't an empty promise that God's making. He doesn't make empty promises about the judgment that is coming. It's coming. But he also doesn't make any empty promises that those who call out on his name will be saved. I've met people even who've been to this church who keep telling me how they need to clean their lives up in order to be accepted by God. You can't do it enough. But God has done it for you. 
What he asks for you, what he commands you, is to repentance and turn in saving faith. God is planning on burning this world up with fire, dissolving it and judging all people who will ever have lived on this earth. And the Bible is crystal clear about this, crystal clear about how this story is going to end. The day of the Lord Israel, and it's coming 24 hours a day. It's on its way. But God has given us a lifetime opportunity to repent and to turn from our evil way and receive mercy in life. Can you think about that, that God has actually given you an entire lifetime to sin, an entire lifetime and give you a chance to repent? I think of uh, Richard Dawkins, you know, the famous atheist. They call him one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. He's actually not that good. His work is kind of sophomoric, but he's something like 80 years old. This guy spent his entire life trying to convince all of us that we're deluded for believing in God. God gives him breath and keeps his heart beating. God's giving this man an entire life and exposure to so many Christians to get him to repent. What is he going to say when he meets God in the end? You didn't give me enough evidence. You didn't send enough people my way. You didn't give me enough time. God is incredibly merciful, and he's given us this chance to repent. And so, let's rephrase verse 10. This can, you can make this your, I don't know, your special purpose verse that you can stick onto your steering wheel of your car. You might maybe in the notes section of your bullets and write this part down. This is verse 10. We're going to change it a little bit. When God saw what I did, how I turned from my evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to me, and he will not do it. Because if you're in Christ, Christ paid for your sin. You don't pay for it anymore. Jesus did it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. If you are in Christ, this day of judgment is going to be a day of glory and of, of new bodies, of seeing our Savior face to face. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to have that 2 a.m. wake up in the middle of the night with your existential dread moments anymore because Christ has redeemed you. This is metanoia. This is turning. This is repentance. This is what God commands all people to do. And God has promised to save everyone who calls on his name. Jesus says, I will lose none, not a single one of those who's been given to me. So we need to make sure that we underline an important point here. It's easy for us as sophisticated metropolitan, church-going, professing Christians to ignore or take lightly um, calls for repentance and turning from sin. Um, it, there's a words which we're discouraged from using because we think of these old Puritans burning witches and so forth and trying to, trying to harsh our mellow. And it's likely even that some of you are sitting with your figurative arms folded waiting for me to shut up because you think this message is irrelevant to us and it's only for non-Christians. We only th think that repentance is something that you did at the beginning to become a Christian. We say, I've already repented. I did that. I paid the fee. I'm a lifetime member now. But open your eyes and don't lose sight of the fact that all of the scriptures that I've quoted regarding repentance and holy living were written to professing followers of God. These were all written to people who said they believed in God. And God tells you, the one who claims to be a God follower, that you need to take sin and repentance seriously. 
Israel, in Jonah's time, was given messages calling for repentance too and ignored them because they were too proud and too blind to see their desperate need. Israel, in Jesus' time, was also too proud and too blind to see their Messiah standing right in front of their eyes. And I've said in previous messages to not be like Jonah, and I joked around, you know, you have those what would Jesus do bracelets. You have one that says, don't do what Jonah would do, bracelets would be great. But today, I want to say, don't be like Israel, arrogant, stiff-necked, and hard-hearted, who just a few decades later were destroyed because of this. If you're trying, or if you're clutching to a favorite sin, then let's call it what it is. It's not a signature sin. It's a favorite sin. You need to repent. And the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're not hiding anything from God. He knows. He knows. The Bible says your sin will find you out. There's not a thing that's going to be hidden which will not be laid bare in the end. We call it their secret sins known only by us and Lord God Almighty and the host of angels and witnesses who are observing everything we do. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't think that we can fool God. And don't think that it doesn't matter. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. But God has said... I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we uh, are confronted with your word. And Lord, I just know that uh, it's so easy to have a heart that's resistant to these things. We like, the, we like the messages that tell us how awesome we are. We like the messages which say that you think we're awesome. We don't like messages which say that we need to turn from our sin and that we're in desperate need of God himself to save us. But this is what your word says, Lord, so I pray, if anything, and above all else, that you would convict us, convict us of truth, convict us of our own need for you. But let us rejoice, Lord, that we are saved. Let us rejoice in what Jesus has done. And as we prepare to celebrate and to remember what Christ did, dying for us in our place so that we would have peace with you. Oh God, I pray that you would continue to humble us, to exalt the Savior, and to promote holiness in this church. For we pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen. A couple of communion.